My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Elizabeth Merkel. Elizabeth is the co-founder and the executive director of a beautiful organization called Open Source Wellness, which is bringing the ethos of community and connection as medicine into the modern healthcare system. Elizabeth has a background in psychology. She's a licensed psychologist, PhD, and a researcher who's devoted a lot of her time, energy, and attention to understanding which, what makes communities thrive. So in addition to her teaching work at, um, at the California Institute of Integral Studies, which focuses on community mental health, and in addition to her leadership work as the ED of Open Source Wellness, she also is a member of and a proponent of community living and co-housing and cohabitation. You might remember a previous guest, Chris Herndon. Uh, Chris actually introduced me to Elizabeth. And so this is kind of a wonderful part two to my conversation with Chris around what it actually means for us to come together in ways that allow us to live together, learn from each other, to heal and to grow and to evolve Liz has a wonderful lived perspective on this firsthand as a, as a, someone who lives in co-housing secondhand as someone who's researched it and also in the work that she does with open source wellness around teaching others to connect with each other towards healing and growth. This is a, a powerful, fun, enriching conversation in that spirit. And if you're thinking at all about new ways of living and being in the world, then this one's for you. So, Let's get settled in. <sighs> and hear what Elizabeth has for us. Okay. Hi, Liz. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. Hi, Andy. So good to be here. Yeah, it's nice to see you again. We were having a good laugh about how long it took for this to happen with reschedules on both ends, but we finally did it. Indeed. So excited <laughs> for our conversation. Me too. And it looks just lush and green and beautiful where you are. Remind you, you're out in Berkeley, is that right? I'm in Berkeley, yes. And the trees outside my windows have me feel like I'm in a little jungle, which oh, brings me joy. I love it. Well, for those listening in, just let yourself be surrounded by the presence of all these beautiful bright greenery that Liz is surrounded by. So um, I feel really glad to be here with you because Chris, Chris Herndon, one of our mutual friends and colleagues who is also guest on the show, when I asked him, hey, who else should I talk to? Uh, you know, in particular around kind of co-living and co-housing, but just also more generally, like in the space of wellness and healing and, and he was like, oh, you got to talk to Liz Markle. So here we are. (laughs) 
Wonderful. Well, they're all my favorite topics. So where do we start? Yeah, where do we start? Hmm. Well, you live, uh, the house that you're in is a, is a, is a co-housing house. Is that right? It is. It's a cooperative, actually. Okay. Um, I've lived in cooperatives for, my God, almost 20 years now. Wow. Can you, um, say, more, can you say more about that distinction, the, the underlying cooperative? So tell, tell me what that is. Tell us what that is. Sure, sure. Well, so backing up a little bit, I'm a psychologist by training and I did my PhD in counseling psychology. So a lot of that training was how to be a therapist, but another part of it, because it's a doctorate was a research degree. And so I had the opportunity to research pretty much whatever I was interested in. And I had been living in cooperative houses for six years by that time. And I said, I want to research intentional community. Because I'd seen great architectural studies about how to design communities and sort of, you know, urban planning studies on how to design Mm. communities. But I hadn't seen anybody talking about the social and psychological Mm. aspects of designing intentional community for success and well-being. And so I got really into studying social support, social capital, and social sustainability in the context of intentional community. Can you and, say those three things again? Social yeah, support, <laughs> okay. social capital. What was the other one? Yeah, yeah. So there's social support, yeah. which is sort of a one-on-one or a small group thing, right? It's like, oh, you give me a ride to an air- the airport mm. and mm. you know, you can cry on my shoulder and I'll take care of your kids when you have a crisis. It's that kind of you know, immediate, tangible thing. And then there's social capital, which is sort of the, the web of... Um, we could say the word obligation, but we could also say goodwill, mm. right? We build social capital when we support others. And when we ask for support, there's this sense of investment that happens. Mm. And social capital is cool because it's one of the only kinds of capital where when you use it, you generate more of it, mm. right? Mm. So when you ask a friend for a favor, they and, and they happily do so, not only are you investing in you know, uh, you potentially future in the future doing them a favor, but they actually feel more connected to you as a result. So Mm. social Mm. capital is a cool thing. And then there's social sustainability. Like how do we design communities and relational structures that last for the long haul and that don't sort of devolve into resentment and disconnection and fragmentation in the community. So I, I got to study these three things and, because the world of intentional community is so broad, right? There's every possible configuration of how to live or be in community together. I chose the co-housing model. And co-housing is cool because it's a specific thing. It's actually pretty well-defined. It's a Danish model that was brought to the U.S. in the 70s, where every small family or individual has their own small living unit. Now, it might be a freestanding small house. It might be an apartment in a bigger building, but it has its own kitchen and bedrooms and living room and all that. So it could be an independent unit, but all of those are arranged around a large common house or common space Mm. that also has a big commercial kitchen dining space for the entire community to eat together if they wanted to. And then all those things that that you don't need your own of. So like a guest room, a yoga room, a movie room, a kid's playroom, 
Um, what else, you know, like the, the arts a and crafts space. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Laundry in some spaces. It's yeah. like, wait, we use this like 3% of the time. Like yeah. what, what if we made these collective? Yeah. So. Can I just pause here for one second? Something that I'm like noticing that's really exciting for me. That of course. Right? Yeah. Well, so, the, so it strikes me that what you're describing is a sort of grassroots version of what some savvy and perhaps less compassionate or caring entrepreneurs have noticed, which is like, we have stuff that we don't use all the time. And uh, in a community, you can share that stuff. And when you're not in a community, if someone might figure out a way to, com- to commodify it, like, oh, you have a car, why don't you rent it to someone else? Or why don't you drive it for someone else? Or you have a space in your room, why don't you rent it out? It makes- and so there's something like, I'm just noticing that connection and noticing like the way what you're describing versus what we sort of see show up in other spaces is, is often billed as, as innovative, quote unquote. And it, look how innovative it is that we've helped you find a way to make more money off your car. But you're sort of talking about something that's much more grounded in how we could live together and be together in a place that's like sharing and exciting. So I just that just popped out at me as you're as you're noticing that we use stuff like three percent of the time or something. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah, there's something just radical about calling something innovative that is something that human society has done for millennia that we just lost track of, right? right. Like and, <laughs> community and village and uh, tribe, for lack of a better word, is how human beings get along and it's how successful societies work. Mm. You know, if you look at mm. any society that does well, that's sort of how it works. And and we've lost track of that, I think. Charles Eisenstein said it so well that, you know, all of our relationships have become transactional in some way. Mm. And mm. if we need something, we buy it, which means that we don't need each other. Mm. So our, like our relationships stop mattering and we stop maintaining them because if we have a need, we just pay somebody for it. Mm. And, and part of what Charles is saying was that actually communities that have more unmet needs, whether they're lower socioeconomic status, um, you know, greater, greater interdependency are actually much stronger communities than sort of the, the mansion lined streets where people don't meet their neighbors over 10 or 15 years because <laughs> they have everything inside their own house or they order it in. And there's no need to knock on their neighbor's door and say, Hey, can I borrow an egg? Or, you know, can you watch my kid in the playground for 10 minutes, et cetera? So yeah, and it strikes me that not only is there no need, so there's this which would be a natural impetus, but there's also, at least I'll speak for myself, I know so there's also like a little bit of discomfort or embarrassment, or maybe even shame about like, what if you had to be the neighbor to go knock on a door and ask for something? Like the way that that has subtly become a, a message about your worthiness or lack of worthiness in our culture. Yeah. Does that resonate with you? Like us? It does. It does. Yeah. I mean, the, the American dream has been independence, nuclear family, picket fence, do it yourself, owe nothing to nobody, need any nothing from nobody. Mm. Um, and, and we see the costs of that, right? We see the costs of that on parents and on children and on the social structure of society. Because if you don't na- know your neighbors, it's much easier to anonymize them and other them and to not care for them when you're making policy decisions, voting decisions, social equity decisions. Um, if we don't know each other, we are, we are not well wired to, 
to care for and prioritize each other's well-being. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So I took us a little bit sideways here, but you're talking about these three kind of pillars of intentional communities and then well, you're like, I get to research these. Yeah. I mean, it's great that we're, that we're sort of exploring these nooks and crannies of the, of the social world. So yeah, we talked about social support and social capital. And then the third was social sustainability. Right. And I think of these as nested, right? So social support is a tiny circle in the middle and then social capital is bigger and social sustainability is a much, is an even Mm. broader encompassing concept. And that's the Um, piece that like lets a society endure. Is that what you mean? Is that what? Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. Or a community or collective of some sort. Right, right. That that sort of has regenerative principles baked into it socially rather than extractive principles and practices. Um, right. So you should probably you should probably un- really underline that distinction too, because that feels there's like there's a lot in that regenerative versus extractive. And I I know you and I are talking the same language, but but for some people who are deeply embedded in the sort of nuclear family world that you described, which I, actually I am quite to a certain extent. They might go, wait a minute, regenerative versus extractive. What do you, what's going on there? Can you, can you unpack yeah. that in a sentence or two? Yeah. Well, you know, these definitions come from the, the sort of farming and agriculture world where we look at, are we, are we building soil, right? Are we increasing biodiversity and richness and nutrient base of the soil? Or are we monocropping it over and over again mm. with mm. pesticides and fertilizers such that after six or seven rounds of that, the soil's dead, like actually dead. There's nothing living in it and it won't grow things anymore, right? Because you're not just growing carrots or soybeans, you're growing all this, this diverse microbiome that supports all of that. Mm. So, um, you know, that, that language has been sort of transitioned to look over at social structures and societies to say, are we doing something that builds um, resilience that builds well-being, that builds relational, um, like a web, a comp- complex well web of relationships, mm. or are we building something that that devolves into into purely transactional and um, and extractive relationships, where where those who amass more resources, more power, more control, increasingly design things to suit them, and those who lack that leverage resources control power are forced to accommodate to meet the needs of those in more privilege so um yeah i know it doesn't paint a pretty picture but i think that's that's what we're seeing right and if we were to play with that kind of analogy from agriculture i'm struck by a few things it really it, it really hit me hard to recognize like what did you say that basically in seven growing cycles if you don't farm well, you end up with soil that no longer can grow food. Is that something like that? Well, I want to just say I'm not a, I'm not an agricultural expert, so I'm sure that varies by plant and by practices, but that's the, that's the fundamental that if you monocrop crop using, you know, synthetic fertilizers and pesticides and all of those things, after a while, the soil really does die. Right. Right. Well, I, I was reading somewhere recently that, that the United Nations said that if we don't transition to regenerative, a regenerative approach to agriculture, which you're sort of talking about diverse ecosystems, right? So you don't just have one big crop of corn or soy or rice or whatever that you have kind of trees and hedges and different uh, and flowers and perennials and like everything kind of growing together in a, in, in a way that they would in nature kind of naturally allows for that regeneration to happen. But if we don't do that as a planet, 
then in something like 60 years, there'll be no, there'll be no farmable soil left on the whole planet. Like <laughs> the whole planet. Right. That's horrifying. It's horrifying. Right. Yeah, it's horrifying. Right. And, and while I lack the expertise to, to speak meaningfully about the, the biology behind that, what I've been fascinated by in my entire career is what is the social analog of that, mm, mm, right? And, mm. and in our transition over the last four or 500 years from villages and small hunter-gatherer groups to a fully industrialized information technology society, um, you know, what are we doing that is regenerative and that increases our well-being and what do we do that depletes it? And that's really where the interest in intentional community comes from because my my sense looking at the nuclear family, the American dream, the white picket fence is that um, it looks pretty on the outside and it's miserable on the inside. It's mm. it's to speak in generalities, it's exhausting. Yes. I I worked in primary care integrated behavioral health for which is a fancy way of saying you know, working in the healthcare system. And I, I would watch doctors say, okay, you need to eat better. You need to exercise more. You need to reduce your stress. You need to get some social support and then good luck with that. Off you go. Take care now. <laughs> and thinking like, just a so few simple things you need to change. Yeah. Everything. yeah so let's imagine this, right? So, <laughs> you know, two parents are working and they've got to pick their kids up and go home and they're supposed to like shop for healthy produce, chop it, prepare it, cook it, serve it, clean up, help with homework, you know, manage everything. And then they're supposed to go to the gym and meditate and see their friends. Like nobody can pull that off. Yeah. Literally nobody. Yeah. And, and yet we feel shame and isolation and demoralization that we're somehow doing it wrong when it's a structural problem, right? It's not, it's not the individual failure of a parent or a family. It's structural. Mm. Mm. So what your t- what your research started to move into was this kind of at the level of social sustainability, there are choices we can make in how we design our communities that are going to kind of vent off a lot of this pressure that right now individuals and individual families have to kind of our culture tells individuals that it's their fault. But we're saying, no, no, it's structural that actually we could build communities in a different way, not just architecturally, but socially so that we could actually take care of each other better. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it's a radical idea. And and when I say structural, I want to, first of all, name that we're talking about huge economic and political structures, right? Yeah. And so that that I'm deeply unqualified to speak meaningfully about. And so, yes, we as individuals and families and small groups of up to 100 to 150 people, yes, we can absolutely design um, for human well-being. And I'm, and that's what I really have focused on. Mm. But I do want to give a nod to, we are, de- we are still designing within a context mm. that has deep structural problems. Mm. So that aside. Yeah. It's like I, trying <laughs> to build a little Island of something else yes. inside of like this bigger ocean of, yeah. Yes. And we have to do that just like we have to eat healthy, even when big food and big ag are, you know, marketing Coke and hot Cheetos to us, right? Like, yes, we make our personal choices. And I want to contextualize that in the broader context that Mm. makes it hard. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Yeah. So yes, this is where co-housing caught my attention because it's not the sort of far out sort of commune model, right? It's not where we share our income. We organize around a charismatic leader. We agree to a a shared spirituality, et cetera. Like that, that works for some. And it's a pretty tough 
it's a tough thing to keep going sustainably. Um, it, yeah. And there's a whole separate conversation we could have about the, the psychological and egoic pitfalls of like, of the person who's leading the commune and the people who attach themselves right. to that person and all of that stuff. Right. That's a, that's a tricky model. And, and yes, worth talking about, but part of why I liked co-housing was that it, it, it really, it strikes a balance of privacy and community. Mm. So people, they own their homes, which is financially important for many Americans. They have the privacy of their homes. They have their own income. They, they, they manage their, their internal family life as they would, but they are nested physically and socially within a community of 30 to 45 other families or individuals that agree based on principles and sort of social structures that they're going to live in community together. And so you know, every community does this differently, but many co-housing communities have, say, three community dinners a week. And the community rotates, you know, participating in, you know, spending a bunch of time in this giant kitchen space, cooking enough food for the whole community. And mm. it's not fancy, right? It's not, it's not like gourmet meal necessarily, but it's feeding everybody. So mm. with, you know, four or five hours of labor by maybe three or four people, you end up with dinner for... 80 people, mm. right? Which mm. is a huge economy of scale rather than every family spending 40 to 60 minutes preparing and cleaning up food, right? So there's just wow. an efficiency there. Wow, yeah. And then there's the social structure of, you know, instead of the, the four of us or the three of us, right? Parents and kids, maybe one parent and kids trying to kind of get all of our social needs met over dinner. It's like, we are all going to community dinner where all the kids can run around together and all the parents can kind of keep an eye on them and the parents get to have a grown-up conversation. Mm. Mm. So that's just one example of so how there's sort of economies of scale built in and then there are these social needs being met and 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 bonds or connections being woven because of the context of the community. And it doesn't require busy parents to do a lot of calling and scheduling and shopping. And who, are you going to come over to our place? And what are the kids going to do? Right. It, it, it bakes it into the structure of daily life instead of requiring extraordinary wealth or willpower to make it happen. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes so much sense. And I just am really, I mean, I sort of talked to you about this before we started recording, but, but I am as a parent of two living very much with, the constraints that you just described around scheduling and travel and availability and cost and time to prepare dinner. And, you know, all of those things are, I mean, there's an element of beauty and joy in them. Like it's really fun when we manage to pull off a dinner and everyone eats together. <laughs> it's right. really fun. And we don't pull it off a lot because, because mm -hmm. something has to give. So right. what I hear you describing is just a real natural, more organic way in which if people are willing to commit to some structural agreements, like, Hey, yeah, we're all going to eat dinner once a week and everyone's going to pitch in and, at, and we'll rotate and we'll do that. What emerges from that is not just a big dinner for everyone, but all of these other sort of social connections uh, that, that maybe sit inside those three circles you talked about that allow for social support and build social capital and ultimately make this place sustainable. I mean, I could imagine those kids maybe, being one day being elders in that same community because of those, the deep, deep bonds that have been built there. So that's, it's very, it's very compelling and exciting to me at least. Yeah. You know, it has been for me as well. And, 
two things I want to point us towards. One is that not everybody wants to live in a residential community, right? And so in the founding of Open Source Wellness, which I, we can share about, we really started to say, how could we take the, the goodness, the active ingredients, the the magic of intentional community and make it available to a much broader population. And the, the second I want to just say is that I, I make it sound kind of rosy as we talk about it here, but um, living in community means you have to deal with human beings. <laughs> and you have and to like talk about shit. And you do, you do. I mean, I, I live in a cooperative, which is a little different, but we have to have meetings about, you know, what kind of peanut butter are we going to buy? Right. And there's like the crunchy and the smooth and the salted and the not, you like, and, and you have to resolve conflicts. One of the, one of the best quotes that came out of my dissertation was somebody said to me, um, living in co-housing is the most expensive personal development course I've ever taken. <laughs> <laughs> which I just love. It really sums it up. Amazing. Well, first of all, I, I want to make sure we talk about the important thing, which is I'm assuming everyone agreed on crunchy, right? Because if not, <laughs> you got to get out of there. You got to get out of there quick. I'm with you. I'm with you. It's the only way. <laughs> but, but, but maybe I'll unpack that quote because like, there's a way in which for me, who as someone who spent probably more money than, than, uh, my wife would 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 prefer on personal development. Like, there's a way in which that is exciting to me to be like, oh, what is that about? Why is it so so? What is so developing about it? And and yeah, just say more about what's there. Like, let's talk about those realities. So it's not quite so rosy, but still perhaps honest and exciting for folks who want to be called to it. Yeah, you know. Having visited a lot, I toured around and visited a lot of co-housing communities, and there was a real distinction between those that were socially functioning, not that it was perfect, but that they were engaged and they had social structures to hold them in dealing with conflict, and those that had um, had stopped socially functioning, that their, their, their mm. sort of the integrity of their social met metabolism of conflict had broken down. Mm. Um, I think what I would say is like, it, people have a hard time getting along. They just do in every, every employment context I've ever seen in every living situation, we've got stuff, we've got trauma. We've got the sense that our way is the right way. We have wishes about how other people would be and they just don't be the way we'd like them to be. Mm. And of course we don't be the way they'd like us to be. <laughs> um, and so I think many people sort of move into co-housing thinking, oh, we'll, we'll just get it set up right. And then it'll be smooth or, oh, we're having this conflict, but we'll resolve that. And then it'll be, it'll be easy sailing. Mm. And that is just not the case, right? Mm. It's a, it's continuous, and every time some new decision has to be made, right? Oh man, we got to put a new roof on the common house or the kids are being loud and what are the teenagers doing? And, you know, who, who's going to do more hours of work shift and what happens if, if I'm traveling, right? The, the questions are endless mm -hmm. that I think if you're going to live in a community like that, you have to, or it helps to orient it, uh, orient to it as a practice that the emotional labor, as it were, of 
getting along and doing our best to work things out equitably and to care for people when they need it because, you know, somebody will get sick and somebody will become disabled and somebody will need to leave and all, you know, the, the stuff of life keeps happening. Mm. The people who were the happiest in my research were those who saw that as, you know, part of their HOA fee, their homeowners association fee, or they, they saw it as an ongoing investment in the community, not as an irritation to be dispatched of. Mm. Mm. Um, and that, that takes some commitment. And mm. I realize that it's, it's not for everybody. Mm. Well, you know, <laughs> I mean, a party wants to say, and, you know, I'll acknowledge there are lots of ways in which I don't live up to this standard, but a party wants to say, it's like, what if it were for everybody? Not even that, it, not even in the, on the level of like, well, we got to have everyone co-house together, but, you know, kind of like, guess what? We kind of all are on the planetary level co-housing together, <laughs> <laughs> right? And um, yeah. yeah, there's just something really it's, uh, human making about accepting that life happens and evolves and keeps unfolding in ways that we can't control. And we can either get pissed about that or we can surrender to it and see what, what emerges as a result. Yeah. Fair enough. I love that frame that like, we're just in a very large co-housing community here (laughs) on this planet. Um, Yeah. You know, I would say if I were, if I were thinking about that from a social design perspective, I would say, wow, we're going to need some skills Mm -hmm. to learn how to navigate that, Mm -hmm. right? That that when new co-housing groups are forming, um, they need advice around architecture, right? They definitely need design help, but but they also need social skills training and help to get the structure set up so that the whole thing doesn't blow up socially before they've even got it built. And that happens more often than you'd think. So I get really curious about you know, what would support young people and teens and people in their 20s building all of those social uh, navigation skills along with the other adulting skills that they need to have? Is this part of, is this part of the driver for open source wellness, the kind of that, that question? Is that, what you're, is that the kind of question you're trying to answer with open source wellness or is there something else there? Yeah, so not exactly. Um, open source wellness was born out of my experience and my co-founder, Dr. Ben Emmer Aronson's experience, both living in intentional community, right? So we had these personal lives, like I described, where we're, mm-hmm. we're living in community. A lot of beautiful needs are getting met just by the context that we're living in. And then working in the healthcare system, mm-hmm. ranging from the emergency department to little primary care clinics and watching doctors dispense these things we now call behavioral prescriptions, right? Exercise more, eat better, reduce your stress. Good luck with that. Off you go. And thinking, this is a tremendous setup for failure, Mm. right? Mm. This is a setup for shame and for this person to just no-show their next doctor's appointment and, you know, kind of continue on with their chronic conditions worsening until we see them in the emergency department again. Mm. The, the The whole thing has this sort of Um, sham of predictable failure and the patients know it and the providers know it um, and and the providers are burnt out and miserable. Like it's, it's not a good scene in some ways. And Mm -hmm. so the guiding question for us was 
was one, what would be a system that really had integrity, right? That if we're going to give behavioral prescriptions, there's a behavioral pharmacy or a delivery system to support people mm. on actually mm. making good on those prescriptions. Yeah. And, and then the other one was, it, it, how do we bring the goodness of intentional community and make it accessible to the broader population via the delivery system of the healthcare system? And how do we not have people have to have conversations about peanut butter or conflict resolution, right? How do we, how do we bring some of the active ingredients of, of intentional community and deliver it um, in a way that's less investment on their part, both financially and socioculturally? So that's, that's where it came from. Mm. It strikes me that, so I want to hear more about that, what it looks like and feels like, but it just strikes me that in the same way that a co-housing community itself is sort of a living alternative to, to housing development or, or suburban development, or I don't know what, any kind of sort of the urban or, or suburban planning development that's like, hey, here's how it could look differently. I hear open source wellness as a sort of version of, and hey, here's how our healthcare system could look differently. Like that we're going to try and remind ourselves that it's not just about ex- sort of, maybe if this is the, the regenerative versus extractive distinction, mm. like that it's not just about extracting the cure or getting what you need from your doctor or the doctor giving you what you need and then see you later, but rather like creating a space where people can stay healthy and be healthy over the long term. Is that, is that a fair analogy? That's a cool analogy. I haven't thought about it that way. You know, I would say there is something extractive about about the way the healthcare system yes. operates. It's yes. extractive from everybody though, right? Like yes. pa- patients go in, they're afraid. They meet for 12 minutes in a teeny room mm. with a very hurried expert mm. who's, who's not necessarily bringing extraordinary human skills. They're, they're bringing their technical knowledge of medicine and they come away with an injunction, right? Do this, take this medicine, exercise more. And and, you know, within a month, they're sort of filled with their own sense of shame and failure because they haven't done it. Mm. And the whole thing is shrouded in veils of confidentiality and anonymity. And it's, it's, it's set up that way in the interest of privacy. But, but part of the upshot is that it keeps people isolated, mm. right? That the isolation is sort of the condition that, that actually prohibits the community as medicine goodness that we've been talking about. And so... Mm. Um, you know, there's also an extraction from providers and, and that's another whole conversation. But yeah, when we, when we were designing open source wellness, we thought, you know, what would it be look, what would it look like to really deliver the, the medicine, not just talk about it, but experientially do it together in community. Mm-hmm. So we set up open source wellness to deliver on one universal prescription that we abbreviate move, nourish, connect, be. So physical activity, healthy food, social connection, and stress reduction. Mm-hmm. Move, nourish, connect, be. And, and our assumption is that hurts nobody, right? Those four things are good for everybody. And they are- Do no the, harm. Yep, that's yeah, a good and first Do no principle. harm, exactly. <laughs> right. And they are the best way we know from the evidence to transdiagnostically uplift human well-being. Mm. So it, it's not about the depression group or the diabetes group. 
or the, the hypertension group. It's about doing the, the things that are the behavioral underliers or the most proximal behavioral drivers of these downstream health conditions in the first place. Mm. And so mm. whether it's preventative or remedial, the intervention is fundamentally the same. Mm. Move your body, eat good food, connect with humans, find ways to manage stress. It's, it's not precision medicine. It's sort of global human medicine. Mm. Mm. It's beautiful. And where are you meeting people with this, with this offering? Like if I'm coming through this extractive, isolated, anonymous system, how do I even know open source wellness is a place I could turn to for some healing and connection? Yeah. Well, we work in a number of contexts. We work in low-income housing. We work with employers that want to support their employees. We work in communities. But I would say 80% of our work right now is in deep partnership with the clinical healthcare delivery system. So the way it works, the, you know, the patient experience when we have a partnership with a clinic or a hospital system is that a doctor, when they diagnose somebody with something that's behaviorally mediated, so it could be diabetes, depression, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, et cetera. They would say to the patient, I'm going to write you a prescription, but it's not for medication. It's for mm. participation in a community. Mm. And they share a little bit about open source wellness. And mm. if the patient's interested, they get a phone call from an open source wellness health coach. And this is somebody that's culturally relevant to them. And that, that person will spend 20 to 30 minutes getting to know that person by phone and really mm. exploring with them what hurts, what would make a difference. It's not just about the diagnosis. It's, a, it's about their life. Mm. And once that relationship is starting to form, that patient would be enrolled in a four-month cohort and that's a group that meets every week, maybe in person or during a pandemic, it's all virtual, but it's, it's about 90 minutes to two hours of live time together every week where mm. we do those four big things. So we have sort of an arc of the experience where everybody, including the coaches, the facilitators, everybody together does fun physical movement, a little bit of dogma-free mindfulness or stress reduction. We eat a meal. Or we, we sort of, you know, we ideally we're in person and we're actually eating a plant-based meal together. But when we're separate, people get grocery bags of organic produce delivered and some support for preparing an easy meal or snack. Wow. And we work in small groups to connect with each other. And, um, you know, we, it's, it's a coaching context. So there's a small group with one health coach, one peer leader, and five or six participants that are really going deep about their lives. And mm. this is sort of where the magic happens because yes, they talk about their diagnoses and their health challenges and, you know, you know, what's going on physically, but they end up just talking about their lives. Mm. You know, they talk about yeah. their hopes and their dreams and their families and their traumas. And it's not psychotherapy, but it's highly therapeutic. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm really glad you underlined that last piece because what strikes me there's a lot that strikes me. It's beautiful. Thank you for, for sort of taking a stand for this kind of community healing in the face of a system that seems to be hardwired to like be immune to that kind of healing or not know what to do with it. But it just strikes me that there is um, a way in which 
And I guess there's a lot of research to back this up that just by being seen and heard by somebody else is healing and all, and all of the senses that we mean that word it's healing. And that, that just for those, for those of us who live inside a system, that's like, give me the data. We could probably like, if I spent 30 minutes doing a little research online and we could have like 10, 10 research studies with like longer lifespans, uh, increased, increased mobility, even as you age, uh, you know, a, a deeper sense of meaning and purpose. Uh, like there's just all of these benefits from being connected to other people and having other people just see and hear you. Totally. You know, when we, when we started open source wellness, we were sort of thinking of it as a chronic disease intervention and really emphasizing the benefits of exercise and healthy eating and stress reduction. And there's nothing rocket science about any of that right? Like these are pretty fundamental concepts. And what we came to understand as we watched participants go through it and we talked to them and interviewed them afterwards is that really the community was the activating ingredient. It was like Mm. the secret sauce Mm. because our patients would describe their health victories, but what they really wanted to talk to us about was their sense of belonging. They would say, you know, I just don't feel alone with it anymore. Or I have a feeling of hope about this that I haven't in many years. And so our sense is that it's creating a micro culture or a community of vitality, vulnerability, joy, inclusion, welcome, support, accountability, all those aspects of a really, really healthy community. We can kind of jumpstart them by hiring coaches and training our peer leaders to sort of make that happen from the get-go and wrap participants into that community rather than sort of waiting for it to happen organically, which it might, but it might take a long time. We sort of bring people into an already highly activated community feel that helps them create that activation in their own lives. Mm -hmm. We had a coach once who referred to our program as a life force starter engine, Mm -hmm. which I love. Mm -hmm. You know, how great. And part of how we know that's happening is that our participants, you know, yes, they share about their health and every week they they set a goal, they write their own prescription for themselves, but they start saying things like, I'm going to deal with my credit card debt this week, or I'm going to floss my teeth, right? And we don't teach about these things, but once people start getting some traction, right, they have some small victories, they feel like, oh, I can, I can say I'm going to do something and then do it man, the floodgates open and yeah. that's, that's worth, that's, you know, that's the price of admission right there. Jeez. That's so cool. Mm. Mm. What was it? One more time. A life force starter engine. Starter engine. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's funny. There's, there's uh well, it's actually maybe kind of tragic. Maybe it's not so funny, but I'm just, as you share all that, I tune, I'm tuning into the sort of implicit tragedy of that, that there are so many people all over the world, especially in cultures that, that will tell you we've got everything, like materially we are better than we've ever been throughout human history, at least in, in, in some, some parts of the world. And there are so many people who are suffering alone and in silence. And that the simple, the really, really, like you said, it's not rocket science, but the simple act of just being able to say, this is, 
this is how what's happening for me. This is how I'm experiencing what's happening to me. This is how I came to believe that this is who I am. And now I'm seeing that maybe that's not all of who I am, that there's maybe more here. Just that sort of real deeply tragic sense that, that in addition to all of the, the physical pain and suffering and death that exists, that goes swept under the rug, there are just all this mental suffering of people who think they have to do this alone and that there's something wrong with them if they can't figure it all out. Yeah. I mean, speaking of the data, there's a study that came out a couple of years ago saying that loneliness or, or social isolation is about as bad for you as smoking 15 cigarettes a day in terms of, you know, long-term health and mortality. Wow. Holy cow. Right. What, what yeah. if we took that seriously? Yeah. You know, I, I think there's some, there's something human, there's a human universal here around, around telling the truth, being seen and welcomed and um, the, the dissolution of shame that happens mm. when mm. we are received for our truth. Mm. A couple times mm. at Open Source Wellness, we've brought in healthcare executives to come and observe, right? So we say, wow. come and participate. And the only rule is that you take off your executive hat and you really, you, you play the game with us, right? You move, you eat, you share, et cetera. And a couple times we've had executives sort of join a cohort. They said, well, I need this in my life, <laughs> which of course, you know, brings us great joy because we're, we're there to serve them just as much as we are the the communities with many, many less resources that are kind of our bread and butter day-to-day, you know, mission work. So I, I think there, there are some univer- human universals here that can be leveraged to design systems that leave humans better than they found them. And yeah. I, I want to say that while I can be critical of the healthcare system, I'm not anti-healthcare, right? Like I, I come from healthcare. It's where I grew up professionally and we work in deep partnership with healthcare. So it's not the doctor's fault. It's, it's not, it, there's nobody sort of immediately to blame for it. Mm-hmm. We've just mm-hmm. drifted into a, a model that I don't think is actually accomplishing what we all got into this for. Yeah. I'm really glad you underlined that because I was just sort of feeling the same impulse to say a version of that, which is to say, it's easy to sit and be like, well, the healthcare executives there, they've got to fix it. Like, you know, (laughs) come on lady, fix it. You're the healthcare executive. And it's like, they, you know, she or he or they are as much trapped inside of this kind of, and system doesn't even do it justice. It's just this kind of like, collective coherent set of beliefs and ideas many of which don't actually get talked about they're just so so far down in our psyche that that they feel like reality totally right and then and then at some point if we're lucky someone helps us realize that it's not reality that's just a belief we have a perception we have and so so the executive is is as much a victim of that as anyone any one other person who's touching that kind of collective Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the very Mm. idea that health is sort of a personal problem to be addressed personally is, um, it merits questioning. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. So, so Liz, as you share all this, I have kind of, um, there's a lot coming up for me. This is really exciting. I'm glad we finally got to have this conversation. And one thing that's coming up, which I promise is not a kind of like, there's no kind of gotcha in this question or there's no, there's no like, why aren't you doing this question? Cause maybe you are, 
but I feel like I hear inside of your, your description of open source wellness, a very clear commitment to social support and a, the possibility of, of a remarkable increase in social capital. I'm not sure at the end of these four months, there are connections that remain and ripple and last. Um, but mm-hmm. I wonder how you're thinking about social sustainability in the context of like, it's just a, just feels really big that kind of what you're taking on with open source wellness is both so simple and elegant and meaningful and impactful. I can hear all of that. And the system is just so big. The, comp- the problem is so big. You know, how are you thinking about what sticks over generations as opposed to what sticks over months or years? Yeah. It's a great question and it can be daunting to think like, wow, are we, are we really making a difference here? Or how yeah. do we make a difference beyond the people we're able to directly serve? Um, and that's, that's one that I think about at night too, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. are we doing the best we can? Is there something else we could be doing? Mm. So, so there are a couple things I would share first, um, at small scale, this is something that gives me some joy and relief is that Yes, our graduates, when they finish, they don't want to be done. (laughs) And so a group of them have started what they call OSWX. Do you know how there's like TED Talks and TEDx? Yeah, yeah, nice. OSWX is the, it's the peer run ongoing graduates maintenance group that they kind of cultivate. And it's been running in English for a couple of years. And it looks like we're going to get a Spanish speaking group born here, which is really exciting to me. Um, but, but that's still touching the people who have experienced open source wellness directly. And it's part of why we go out to do corporate talks and work within low income housing and, you know, just try to touch as many people as we can with this methodology. But I do think that, you know, changes need to happen at the level of policy and at the level Mm -hmm. of, Mm -hmm. of, of leadership and advancing a vision of what not only healthcare could look like, but broader social structures mm-hmm. um, could look like in our country. And so, um, you know, my hope is that that courageous leadership um, of which I'm happy to be a part, but, but can't be the whole really, really stand for what's possible in terms of social design Mm. and not like a, you know, creepy overlord social design, (laughs) but like, Hey, here's what human beings appear to be hardwired to need. Mm. And here's how we could bake them into the fabric of society such that it doesn't require extraordinary wealth to be healthy Mm. and well. Mm. And it doesn't require extraordinary willpower to be healthy and well, because Mm. both of those will fail. Mm. Right. Mm. One fails mm. the population and the other fails all of us. Mm. Mm. So. Yeah, that's so well said. And it strikes me uh, just to kind of like deepen and, and refine the point we were dancing with earlier that the healthcare executive is both a victim of the larger cultural field that we're all a part of and experiencing the same, uh, some version of the isolation and the inability to speak their truth and the shame that comes of not having all the answers and but and in some ways maybe even leaders feel that a, a kind of pointed version of that <laughs> even more because we're so used to going like come on leader figure it out and i sense that that there's a really powerful opportunity there for a leader an executive who's who's firsthand experiencing the power of something like this who has a community of support 
that frankly has no stake in the like specific decisions they make as a leader, but are just there as kind of confidants and peers. It just strikes me that, that, that then at some point that executive has a unique opportunity to exercise influence in larger kind of systems of decision-making and power than perhaps the, the average open source wellness participant has. And I feel like that's really exciting. It is, you know, I'm spending about 60% of my time these days traveling around to be part of this series called healing our healthcare heroes. Mm. Mm. So there's a, there's a foundation called 1440 multiversity. They're based in Santa Cruz. Oh, yeah. That, mm-hmm. yeah. That has gotten organized around um, helping to support the healing of the healthcare workers, the first responders, the educators, those who just had to sort of give it all during the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. And they mm. are um, creating these weekend retreats for free. Now it's free to the participants for the ICU staff, the nurses, the medical assistants, all the people who didn't get to work from home and, you know, take up baking sourdough, but had to really show up and risk their own health and their families throughout the pandemic. And so I'm having the opportunity to facilitate large, large groups of these healthcare leaders through essentially open source wellness, but um, sort of transformative, profound, interpersonal, emotional healing experiences. And I love creating the design of that, that sort of arc of experience that can be really, really transformative, sort of getting to bring the personal development world to the healthcare world. And yes, it's my hope that um, through doing some of the personal healing work that you and I are familiar with, um, we have the, the 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 potential to impact future generations of healthcare leadership. Mm, God, that sounds so beautiful. So glad you're doing that. Hmm. Liz, this has been a really, really cool conversation. Likewise, there are so I feel like there were so many you know turns that we we didn't take that we could yeah. could have explored, and yeah. um, so excited to be sort of part of the conversation with you. Me too. And also, I'm, I've been tuning in as of late uh, that each of these individual conversations that you and I are, that uh, people like you and I are having, that I'm having with my other guests, that we are also in our own way, weaving kind of a bigger tapestry of possibility. And, uh, and so I just am really excited now that you're the second person along with Chris, who have very explicitly woven in this kind of what does it mean to live together differently? What does it mean to make different choices at this, you know, yes, there are these huge global, social, international, institutional, systemic challenges that can feel overwhelming. And at the level of, of community or organization, there are new choices that we can start to make about how we live together and be together. And I just really am touched by how you're taking a stand for that. Well, thank you. I appreciate your kindness and, and I do feel seen in it. And I would just expand the question, not only how can we live together residentially, but how can we design systems that create some of the same benefits, right? Like mm-hmm. what would healthcare look like if it were really informed by relatedness, belonging, vitality, vulnerability? Like it's hard for us to even imagine a doctor's office 
functioning with those values at the top rather than just efficiency and privacy and, you know, turnover Mm. and billing. Mm. So that's another whole conversation, but, but what it is, but you know what, actually it kind of, maybe we could do the, like the five minute or less version of it, which is just maybe my invitation to you as we close, you could speak to that specifically, how might doctor offices be different or maybe speak at whatever level feels right for you. But my invitation is to say like, what kind of worlds are you imagining for future generations if some of the the core principles that you're standing for around belonging and connectedness and movement and nourishment started to infuse themselves consciously into our social structures? Like what what are some glimmers of of possible futures that have caught your heart that keep you going? Yeah. Well, how cool would it be to to really just revision primary care? Right. Mm. And instead of having primary care be the bottom of the healthcare pyramid, right. Where it's like primary care is at the bottom and then tertiary care is at the top, right. That's like emergency care, but primary care at the bottom. What if we, what if we imagine a whole pyramid below that, that's focused on physical activity and healthy food and stress reduction and social connection so that, you know, what if the doctor's office looked like a giant well-being center where what most of what was happening was fun physical activity, great food, learning to prepare good food, stress reduction and 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 connecting meaningfully. Like what if you were met at the door with like welcome, we're so glad you're here. What's on your mind today? Like how can we how can we support you rather than you know like stand behind the line. Here's you know have your insurance card, you know, sit over here, don't talk. The doctor will come and get you and four hours or however long it takes. Um, you know, like what if, what if the doctor were sort of the tip of the pyramid and the, the, the broader social connection and well-being piece were the primary deliverable. Mm. That's one mm. vision that I get excited mm. about. Mm. And then speaking more broadly, like what if we really found the political will to get our funding structures in line with human well-being, right? Mm. Like, what if we got Cheetos and Pepsi to be expensive and carrots and lentils and rice and all of that to be fundamentally free? Mm. Like if, mm. if we didn't have this huge wrong pockets problem, mm. right? Where like, like we get people sicker and then some people make money off the procedures and medications required to treat them, right? If, if, that, if that were set up differently such that, we were actually incentivized to keep people well as mm. a society, mm. we would make gyms and healthy food and all of that fundamentally free. Um, so it's, it's a much bigger conversation, oh, I but love that. it would take a tremendous amount of political will and yes. leadership in yes. order to make that happen. Um, but I would be so excited to be a part of that. Okay. Got it. So let's just get uh, every world leader enrolled in open source wellness group. <laughs> we'll plant this seed. Very so. Hey, no, no, just you know, just you're just here to connect. By the way, in <laughs> four months when you're done, we're going to completely reimagine the global ecosystem. Cool. All right. Got it. Let's do it. <laughs> Not Amazing. a problem. <laughs> well, that, I'm very moved by that vision. Uh, the sort of primary care vision. Yeah, I would want to. I would want to bring my, I'd be excited about bringing my family to a doctor's office like that. And I would be even more excited to live in a world like the one you just described. Yeah. And and it is maybe just, I'll just say the last thing I've been reading a lot about 
ancient indigenous cultures lately, like for instance, Celtic cultures and, and, and Druids, which you say the word Druid people immediately evoked kind of a goofy sort of fantasy world, but actually these were a deeply wise culture that knew all about the, the, the ways in which nature worked and had something called the Brehan laws, which was essentially an agreed upon set of laws that said, all of these things, uh, the nuts from the trees, the vegetables in the ground, anything that nature produces naturally is our commonage. And as long as you agree as an individual not to take more, to, to over farm it essentially so that it stops growing, mm-hmm. then it's every, everyone can take it. It doesn't matter what position you hold in society. And so just to like this, I hear you describing a version of that. And it's a sort of say it is a huge political will. And we, our ancestors have done versions of it again and again and again across human history. And so I just really hope for a day where we might rediscover the possibility that, that there's so much we share together that could, could make us all healthy and well. Yeah, I love that we're thinking big and imagining what could be. And and for you, I would just wish and imagine that there were a an awesome open source wellness community center where on an average Tuesday or Wednesday night, you would have the choice. Do we want to go home and do our own thing? Do we want to go and have a community meal and let the kids run around and you know we get a workout in? Like that there would be the choice of something that really supported your family's collective well-being rather than it being on you to generate it from the ground up. So thank you, Liz. Vision for all. Vision for all. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Liz, if people want to learn more about your work or open source wellness, where should they go? Yep. www.opensourcewellness.org is the way to learn more about our work. And I welcome people to reach out. I'm Liz at opensourcewellness.org and happy to hear from people and create magical things together. Mm. Amazing. Thanks, Liz. And thanks, everyone, for listening in. This was a real treat. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua, and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.